So I was looking at some numbers today about California. Oh, yeah? There are about 40 million people living in California, which makes it 12% of the U.S. Oh, that's massive. And that has to make it larger than, what, 200 countries? I mean, I know California is giant, but still, where does everyone live? About 10 million people live in Los Angeles County alone, but that still leaves a lot of people spread out around the state in other major metro areas, but also in rural areas. So that begs the question, what does such a large population size, with its unique uh, mix of uh, concentrations in certain cities as well as a wide dispersal, what does that mean to the housing market? Oh, yeah. And what were things like back in 1989? Hello, and welcome to the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. Today, we're going to talk about affordable housing in California and some of the unique challenges and innovations in the state over time. We're really fortunate to be joined today by Mary Kaiser, the president of California Community Reinvestment Corporation. CCRC is a leading community development financial institution and affordable housing lender in the state of California. And Mary is one of the real thought leaders in the CDFI space and in California affordable housing. So, Mary, thanks so much for being with us today. You bet. Glad to be here. Thanks, Corey. So this is an anniversary year for CCRC, right? 30 years from 1989 to 2019. So that's really remarkable. So congratulations. Yeah, it, it is pretty remarkable given all the changes that have gone on in the last 30 years. We're, we're pretty proud. And we're pretty excited about that. It's certainly a testimony to sort of our ability to adapt to all these changes over the years and support from our funders and this incredible development community in the state. (laughs) So there's really a lot to talk about with the California housing market. But can we start with a little bit more about CCRC, you know, since you've had such an important role for 30 years? You know, how did you get started? So this is my elevator speech, right? Everybody asks me this question and I have to say it and 50 words or less, but basically um, back in 1989, the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco had a large community development uh, department, and with their help and support, they brought together banks in the state of California to create a product that was a gap in the financing stack when the low-income housing tax credit was introduced into the market. So CCRC was created as the organization who would provide the forward commitment for a takeout, um, providing a permanent loan as the construction lenders in the state were very welcome, welcoming of the um, construction loan product, but they really didn't want to take on long-term mortgages. So basically, we started with a $100 million loan pool, and um, the concept of the model was a blind pool. In other words, we had a loan committee who would approve deals, and once those loan committee members approved them, all banks who had participated in the CCRC model were bound to fund that deal, so we didn't have to call around and see who wanted to fund the deal in Fresno versus the deal in San Francisco versus the deal in Los Angeles. So it really helped streamline the approval process as well as make sure that we provided capital to all the markets we served. And um, quite honestly, that model hasn't changed a lot. The capital certainly has grown and the number of banks have grown, but we still operate under that that general model. Turned out this stuff wasn't as risky as they thought, which is why they created this sort of risk mitigation pool. And uh, you fast forward 30 years and we've done about 
um, I don't know, about a billion and billion eight in forward commitments. That's with a B. Uh, about 45,000 homes created for low-income families and seniors and folks with special needs. We now have over 80 investors, and we manage about $720 million worth of loans and bonds that we service for our investors. And to date, we have done a little over a billion dollars in the secondary market um, as loan sales are a big part of our business model. So I'm proud to say after 30 years that no investors in those particular programs have taken any losses on the real estate that we've lent on in California. Wow, that, that's really fantastic. Um, I, I think, you know, let, let's put that in a little bit of context with uh, the California market and, and uh, what you've been doing in the market in a little bit more detail. Well, as you know, the California market is a very diverse market. It's a country unto itself. Um, it's very diverse. It has, you know, challenges just like the East Coast has challenges with respect to coastal communities where you can't, you know, you can't create any more land to develop. So, and then it has rural areas where, you know, land is cheap, but subsidies may be harder to get to make the deals work. So the, um, the good news, bad news about CCRC staying in business in thir- for 30 years is the fact that housing had, you know, we had a terrible housing shortage back in 1989 when we started. And we have a worse housing shortage today. Certainly the state has grown, costs have grown, rents have gone sky high. And so the crisis is now embraced, unfortunately, by everyone across the state, including the governor who just came into office. He clearly had housing on his agenda when he walked in, and he's made um, impacts already in those areas. So, um, you know, a lot of what's happened just in terms of geography, you know, used to be just concentrations of higher rent areas in metropolitan areas. Um but as companies have grown and rents have risen and shortages have been created by supply and demand, rents have been pushed higher and higher, further and further out of those metro areas. So we see rents high and unaffordable in almost all of our markets. Um, it's no longer a, you know, a solution to drive to Palmdale or drive to Riverside County or drive further out and get a, a cheaper house or a cheaper rent. It's, it's sort of been impacted all over the state. Um, clearly an expensive market and, um, you know, has its challenges in that regard. We see that when we look at the data as just you know, at our desk as well. I'm sure on the ground it's, uh, it's um, even more noticeable. Is it I'm, I'm sure that's made it harder to develop over the years. Is that is that right? Yeah, I put sort of difficult to develop and expensive to de- develop in the same in the same sentence. Um, one kind of causes the other. Um, we have land costs, which are obviously extremely extremely high. We have labor shortages. You know, affordable housing takes a long time to develop. You know, from the time that a developer is able to encumber a piece of property while they shore up all the funding sources necessarily to, necessary to do these deals, um, it's really hard to keep general contractors and laborers on, on call while you work through all that. So, you know, the exacerbated labor shortages with 
with respect to just general development in California, I think unfairly impacts the affordable housing product. Clearly, land costs and availability are a real challenge. Um, we have a lot of built-out areas in our metropolitan areas. Um, the multiple funding sources it takes in this state to get a deal to pencil out are extremely painful. Um, they, you know, because the cost is so high and it takes multiple subsidies to get the rents to a level that are affordable, those, those multiple sources create their own costs, if you will. We also have a, a tremendous amount of regulatory uh, requirements to be jumped through. Those hoops have to be jumped through here in California. I think CEQA being the largest, which, of course, is required to show the impact of proposed developments. I will say that oftentimes, you know, neighborhoods use CEQA as sort of a stick to try to chase out affordable housing developments. So sometimes our developers are having to, you know, go through a lot more than a market rate deal would do to prove the worthiness of the project in that area. Um, we also have never embraced density. You know, when you go to places like Vancouver, you go to the East Coast, you go to areas where they started building up from the beginning we did not. This is sort of, you know, I'm looking out my window here and I'm looking at two and three story buildings and it's it's even worse out in the burbs where, you know, houses and picket fences take lots of land and neighbors don't want to see three, four or five story buildings built. Um, so not embracing density has its cost. We are trying to reverse some of that with some of the density bonus programs here in California providing developers the ability to build more, build higher, less parking, very expensive, um, and other things. But it's it's proven sort of painful and, and often litigious. Um, so we continue to fight that battle. But when you don't start that way, it's really hard to turn that around sort of midstream. Um, so, you know, some of the other issues that have complicated that when you bring in multiple sources, which cost money and take take longer time, is the underwriting becomes, um, you know, just a little more complicated. You've got multiple regulatory agreements to, to review and different populations, you know, to, um, to target and making sure that those projects are in compliance. So, yeah, an expensive state, hard to develop, um, kind of fights density along the way. So it's, it's, it's really been a challenge and my hat's off to our developers. I often go to a grand opening of a project. Well, I go to grand openings a lot to projects, and it's not unusual to have three mayors in the in the audience. Usually, it's the mayor who was in office when it was first approved, and then maybe the mayor who was in office when it was under construction, and then the mayor who gets to cut the ribbon because they're the ones that are in office when it finally gets built. Um, I've seen that more times than I'd like to count. So it's a long long development process, even though weather being what it is, it's pretty, it's pretty quick in, in, in terms of not having to wait for the snow to melt. <laughs> so, so Mary, I want to key in on one thing that, that you talked about um, at the beginning with CCRC being created uh, to do perm takeout. Um, so is a lot of what you're still doing uh, new construction or is, or is preservation a big part of that as well? Well, we, um, We'll do, obviously, forward commitments on either to-be-constructed, newly constructed projects or acquisition rehab projects, which are, uh, you know, a big part of our 
developer community portfolio, repositioning those projects, rehabbing them, you know, bringing them, bringing new systems and, and all that. Um, California, about three years into the tax credit program, required a 55-year affordability covenant in its program. So many of the tax credit deals aren't necessarily at risk of going to market. That's not to say that other programs, HUD programs and those types aren't at risk. So yes, preservation is a big part of it. Um, rehabbing the projects, making sure they'll, they'll still be standing and, and safe and decent affordable housing for folks for another 30 years is a big part of our projects you know, pipeline as well. So the, this may get us off on a little bit of a tangent, but the uh, the 55-year extended use agreement uh, in mm-hmm. California. So what does that lead to for the devel- uh, for the developers? Are they, you know, looking for new syndication, um, you know, 15 years in and then again at year 30? Or, or do they uh, pursue different paths usually? You know, I think there's different paths depending on the project and where their rent levels were and whether the rent levels are sufficient to cover the operating expenses. You know, sometimes you go through periods where in order to win tax credits, rents were really, really low, and it was harder for, you know, income to be produced to cover expenses or cover a lot of deferred maintenance. So it it really depends. Um, I think a lot of our developers do re-syndicate to allow for substantial rehab, you know, after those, after those first 15-year compliance periods and, and others just, you know, refinance in a, in, a, in a traditional mortgage that still, obviously, it's income restricted, so you have to underwrite to that income restriction. But the developer community in California, and of course, this is all I really know, but this is an amazing group of folks, you know, and and many of them are celebrating their 50th year in business, their 40th year in business. They've been doing this way before tax credits, way before some of the programs that made it a little bit easier and provided, you know, more equity to these projects. So, So these folks have very large portfolios that they continue to reposition and, um, you know, keep online and keep looking and operating in very efficient ways. And I'm wondering if over the years, have you seen changes in the trends with the properties in terms of property size or or other characteristics? You know, because California is a very competitive state for the 9% tax credit, we have tiebreakers in that regard. And so over the years, we have seen different different tiebreakers that may drive the projects to look different, like less utilization of credit you win a certain tiebreaker, and when you tend to do that, perhaps you haven't, you haven't, um, you know, loaded the expenses properly or done things that allow those projects to either be larger or or make make the long run. Um, I think over the last ten or fifteen years, it's been more consistent with respect to, you know, leveraging public subsidy and some other and some other tiebreakers. So, some of the early on deals which had higher debt levels and perhaps less ability to cover expenses, probably need a little more repositioning than others. But um, the project size has, you know, still there's sort of a sweet spot around that 60 60 unit project. I think the problem is for us, too, is we don't find large undeveloped sites in metropolitan areas. So, you know, we'll see a 100 unit project, which may typically be a resyndication because it's in a bigger bigger space that was built many, many years ago. 
But, um, you know, I think it's been fairly consistent. What is consistent, ironically, is no matter what changes in the market, our average loan size in this portfolio still tends to be in the 3 to $4 million range because at the end of the day, the debt can only be sized, obviously, on the rents that are allowed to be charged to the tenants, and um, the rest has to be subsidy to make the project you know, pencil out on the building side. So the loan sizes have started to go up only because we're starting to leverage additional funding sources, which, you know, I can get into in a while just in terms of how the how the program has changed. But for the most part, the loan sizes are still rather small and, and um, obviously helps the project maintain, you know, the ability to pay its expenses and keep its maintenance. So I think that's a, an important point to draw out a little bit because we uh, you talked at the beginning about how expensive the California market is, uh, which suggests that you know property value or or at least uh, cost to build is going to be very high. Yet loan amount uh, is very low. So so I mean you know as you said a large part of that comes from tax credit equity and and other sources. But but it is sort of you know interesting to note that you're making smallish loans for. Uh, very expensive properties. Yeah, there's a couple of times during a presentation where we're trying to get new investors um, in when I say it's good to be me. And one of them is it's good to be me because we're in the California real estate market where no matter where we build, typically the rents that are being charged on these projects are minimum 10% below market, in you know San Francisco, Los Angeles, other strong markets, you'll see them at 40, 50, 60 percent below market. So the rents, the cushion to the market, you know, is very, very strong. Clearly, what that means, if they cost the same as their neighbors to build, and by the way, sometimes more because neighbors require more amenities sometimes out of the affordable housing developers, you need additional subsidy to make those pencil out. And I think that's the biggest change I've seen since you know, we first started doing this is many of these deals at the beginning were just debt and equity and they worked. Now they're debt, equity, and 15 of your favorite subsidy sources to make sure that you can still build that project and charge those low rents. So that's that's been a real evolution of the market is the layers of subsidy it does take in those high cost areas to get these built and keep those rents low. Have you found that the um, you know at least affordability requirements that go you know across those subsidies are aligned, or or are there uh, you know differences at the local level versus the tax credit program requirements? It's sort of the bane of our existence when we um, and our developers and property managers. No, they're not always aligned, um, and sometimes they use different you know HUD guideline versus a this guideline versus a local guideline in terms of what a, even a sixty percent rent is. So. One of the challenges is threading that needle. Um, not only are the rent um, schedules and, and AMI levels sometimes different, but the populations are also different. So the other evolution that we started to see with subsidy comes targeted populations in the last few years as well. You know, we've we've got programs to support veterans. We've got large programs now to support the homeless population, which is certainly above the fold in California and in other parts in parts of the country. And um, we've got cap-and-trade dollars that we've been using now for transit-oriented 
you know, developments, which have their own set of requirements. So I think one of CCRC's strengths and why we've become so good at what we do is these multiple layers bring a tremendous amount of, um, you know, complication and detail to getting it right and getting it leased upright and getting the debt sized right based on these regulatory requirements. It also creates quite a lot of fun when we go to sell loans. A big part of our business model is recycling capital through periodic loan sales. It's just part of our business model. And as we go to do those loan sales, you know, we need to be able to disclose to sellers what all the regulatory agreements are on the projects without them running out of the room and also have them understand that we understand all those and we have underwritten our permanent debt to make sure that all of those have been accommodated for and accounted for in the underwriting. And that's really become our expertise. Um, I can't tell you how many projects sometimes get leased up and, you know, there's some compliance issues or they've, you know, they've missed some AMI levels or they used the wrong the wrong, you know, is it a statewide or is it a local? It is a utility allowance if it's a state or the local. So it's um, it's not that easy to get it right, but um, it's 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 very important in terms of sizing the debt properly. So that's a big part of how we spend our time. So do you work with your with your borrowers then, you know, through those those issues to help them uh, align and be and become compliant for the long term? Yeah, we have. Um, oftentimes we'll get to conversion. You know, we provide this forward commitment. So basically we go through, you know, underwriting based on their projections of both income and expense. It used to be that expenses were, you know, the ones that took the longest to sort of foot at conversion and make sure that everything was was accounted for. It, it's almost as difficult now to make sure the income numbers are footed to all the different regulatory agreements. So oftentimes we'll get to conversion and we'll find, you know, um, a project that is, you know, it's got three bedroom units charging a 50% or, you know, all those complications that can cross over. And many times when we'll, when we bring that up to the developer, they'll either request a change to the agreement because in the, at the end of the day, they're still targeting the same income levels. It's just amongst bedrooms. We've, we've actually had projects lease up at higher rents than they were supposed to, and they've had to refund that to their clients, you know, to their residents. We've also had those that have leased up at rents lower than they could have and will allow for an earnout over a period of time to get back to those levels. So, you know, our goal at the end of the day is to make sure that some size of a loan works on that project. We have very few loans that fall out um, for, you know, a variety of reasons. Our, our goal is to work with the developer and just make sure that we figure out a loan amount that works. And, um, you know, we're pretty good at that. And, and I think we're successful about 99.9% of the time. Yeah, that's impressive. And it certainly sounds like a, a lot of details um, you mentioned before about the recycling of capital and selling loans. Mm-hmm. Is that are the you know the buyers of those loans? Do they change or what they want um, change? You know, there's there's a couple of answers to that question. They have changed over time. Um, we used to be um, an organization that you know we're a pretty leveraged business model when when we started. 
we weren't really capitalized as a standalone organization in that regard. Um, we borrow every dime that we lend. <laughs> so we don't raise a lot of grant money and, you know, excess capital to, to put into loan funds. We're basically a highly leveraged model in that regard. And um, so it was always, you know, the idea that we would recycle and, and be able to relend that money again and be able to take those fees into income. So early on, because we weren't strong enough to aggregate on our own, we would have more periodic loan sales. And so folks who had come onto the market like Impact Community Capital and the Community Development Trust and, you know, CRF out of Minneapolis and even some banks, direct banks, had, had purchased loans. And we were, we were doing like $40, $50 million loan sales. So um, many of those were motivated by either CRA or um, because they had, you know, investors who were motivated by CRA and they were aggravators or aggregators. I shouldn't say aggravators. Um, over time, because we've built our capital base um, and become a little stronger in the sense of financial capacity, we have been able to wait longer and do larger loan sales, which in the last two years have resulted in two securitizations with um, Freddie Mac, as a matter of fact. We did a $150 million taxable mortgage sale in 2017 with Freddie, and we did a $72 million tax-exempt bond sale earlier this year. And um, so that allowed us to, you know, be able to generate loans over a longer period of, t of time and aggregate loans that we could sell in larger chunks. And before that, we really couldn't work with GSEs necessarily or larger, larger folks in the market because the, you know, the, um, the costs of those sorts of loan sales um, were prohibitive over, you know, very small deals. And so that's, that's sort of our evolving model. Um, so I wouldn't say the motivation so much has changed over time for those buyers, but really just the fact that we don't necessarily need intermediaries anymore or aggregators on our behalf. We're sort of able to do some of that on our own. Yes. So Mary, one thing I wanted to understand a little bit better, you know, with CCRC being uh, a CDFI, but also having your, uh, your business model of recycling capital you know, how do you fit into the sort of CDFI uh, market, and and how do you relate to other CDFIs in in terms of model? You know, um, when the CDFI fund um, was created and the certification came along, I remember thinking that you know we're the poster child for that program because this is who we are. We're a, we're an independent financial institution focusing strictly on community development. So we did apply for the certification. Um, we often felt like we were a round peg in a square hole sometimes because we target individuals earning a certain income level as our primary market, where CDFIs that we know often are geog you know, geographically driven in terms of their market presence and their, and, their, and their focus. So, you know, we differ sort of in that regard. We also differ, I think, because even 30 years later, we've really done a deep dive and developed our expertise in one primary product where we've seen, and I've, I'm often jealous of, other CDFIs who have spawned all these new programs out of needs, you know, identified in their communities. Quite honestly, we've kept pretty busy just doing housing 
and we haven't been able to, you know, declare success yet. So um, we've really just continued to focus on the permanent loan product, both on the taxable and the tax-exempt side. So I think that's slightly different from others. We also have a very leveraged business model. We started out as a as a model where we borrow every dime that we lend. We don't have other sources of capital to put into that that allows us to have, you know, less of a dollar-for-dollar leveraged um, balance sheet. That often causes folks to raise their eyebrows in other organizations or lenders when they first look at us. But once we explain the model, they sort of understand. Um, I think the other thing that's unique, although not as unique as it used to be, is for the most part, the money that we borrow from our banks is recourse back to CCRC. Um, you know, I don't, I don't think most CDFIs, when they first started, ever ex- expected to pledge their balance sheets um, against the loans that they made. I mean, the good news is these loans perform very well, but the bad news is that still provides a pretty leveraged model. And um, we pay a fairly decent rate to our lenders. We just sort of started out that way. We live on a spread between what we borrow and what we lend at. So all of our income is derived from our lending operations. You know, not a lot of grant income, not a lot of extraneous income. So anything that we want to do in terms of product development or new programs sort of has to be generated out of that fee income. And um, the recycling model, as I was saying earlier, has just always been a part of our business model. We always knew that we would never have inexhaustible sources of capital that we'd always sort of hit the wall at some point and need to recycle that capital. So we always kept our eye on the secondary market in terms of the discipline that they required for these loans to be able to sell them in the secondary market. I mean, the worst thing that could happen is every loan we do ends up a portfolio loan and we become a really nice CDFI who does nothing but service loans. So, um, that has been a part of our focus from the beginning is trying to balance investor needs in the secondary market to the, um, you know, developer market and making sure that we could get our capital out there and, and get it recycled. And I, I know having sat on the boards of a lot of CDFIs across the country that that's not necessarily the focus that they have to have for the kinds of programs that they do. So I, you know, I think we're, we're somewhat unique in, in that regard. So, I, you know, I, I think uh, I mean, that, that's a really interesting distinction, but also, you know, back to your point about, and you're still having a great deal of community impact um, through the, the, uh, the renters and the population base you serve. I want to understand a little bit better, so maybe, the, you know, uh, some examples of the types of projects that, that you support. Uh, I mean, you mentioned sort of some of the unique aspects of California. So, so uh, yeah, walk us through one or two uh, two projects or types of projects that you do. Yeah, so, you know, sort of at the 30,000-foot level, the, 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 the focus that we've had over the last few years is really focused on product and, and properties where we've meshed private capital with a whole lot of sources of public debt who are targeting certain populations. And I think that's really been a big part of our success. I mean, private capital has its own needs, and sometimes being at the table with the USDA or, you know, HUD with Section 8 or, you know, state or local issues 
with respect to where they want their capital stack to be treated um, has been a big part of big part of this. So the last few years, I think what we are one of the first to do um, one of the rental assistance demonstration projects with the housing authorities. We have a strong relationship with the housing authorities throughout the state of California. So a lot of these so-called rad deals, which were repositioning, you know, public housing. Um, we've got across the state, and we're very, very proud of those. There was a large one in Candlestick Park, the well, where Candlestick Park used to be, in a beautiful section of, you know, a view of the bay, of the bay, but certainly a place where time forgot. That slowly but surely, four to five phases of housing have been developed in the shadows of the old Candlestick Park up in the Bay Area, and literally folks living in the still-existing dilapidated public housing were watching while across the road their housing was being built. So going through all the phases of that um, over the last few years has been really, really interesting to watch. We've done a project here in Los Angeles that um, houses transitional age youth, um, especially as it relates to the LGBT community, the statistics of LGBT youth homeless numbers is, is growing. And so we've got a developer who has focused on a project here in Los Angeles with that. And that's been, you know, a really beautiful thing to watch because it's part of a bigger plan. We do um, a lot of projects for veterans and formerly homeless veterans. That's been a program that not only HUD um, supports with their VASH vouchers, but we have state programs to target. And we have a project in Long Beach, actually, that's been developed over the past few years. Again, multiple campuses, multiple projects and phases that houses. It's the old Long Beach um, uh, military base. And it's been just a joy to watch all that develop. A hugely service enriched campus. Um, there's a federally qualified healthcare clinic on site and four or five different housing developments. One of the most recent ones that we've done that, you know, because of the homeless situation in Los Angeles being front and center, is a project that just went online. Um, that it was one of the first to use some of the subsidies that the city and the county of Los Angeles have committed, not only for housing development subsidy, but also for services and rental assistance. We have three different programs in Los Angeles that will help uh, subsidize developers who are, who are working with the formerly homeless. And there is a program called Encampment to Home where they literally try to go out on the on the streets and bring an entire tent community and process them at the same time to get them into a development. And, um, you know, you see successes with some and, and, and not others, but the Los Angeles Times just ran a four-page or a four, um, I guess it's a four-part section on that encampment to home and sort of, you know, what, what happened with some of those, what, what went well, what didn't go well. But that's a project that we actually held our annual meeting at last year and showed our investors, um, and I'm air quoting now, who those people are. Um, there's really, you know, the latest statistics here in, in L.A. continue to show that, uh, you know, maybe upwards of two-thirds of the people who are homeless are homeless because of the lack of affordable housing. 
Um, and if you're only one paycheck away, potentially, or a job loss away, or a health crisis away, or, you know, those kinds of things, um, you could find yourself homeless pretty quickly because of the high cost of living here. And once you're homeless, that becomes a really unhealthy thing to be, and it costs a lot of money and takes a lot of time to get people back on to the housing you know, roles as, um, you know, the longer, the longer we lose track of them. So it's, it's a big part of what we're working on now. We've also done, you know, master plan communities. Contrast, you know, that project to we've done a, a project in, you know, Playa Vista. I mean, it's a beautiful planned community with ocean views, and part of that, you know, development included affordable housing. We do development in conjunction with the metro stations or the BART stations so that we have transit close to housing. Um, and we've done a couple of artist communities where, you know, there's live workspace. And so there's just, I mean, over 30 years, you can only imagine how many great projects we have, um, both with mixed income, mixed use, mixed populations. But I think I think it all, the underlying common thread there is it takes the ability to work with all these different funding sources um, to make sure that we can sort of smush and cobble together all that money and it works together. And that's, that's kind of how this stuff works. That is really an impressive list of projects that you've spoken of. And certainly, uh, you, know, t- you know, sourcing capital from all different areas, as you say, and, uh, and serving many different um, populations um, I'm, you, you've also spoken a bunch of, about a bunch of geographies, and you don't really focus on any in particular. But you're, you know, all throughout California. Do you end up with uh, with concentrations, or do you have targets, or is it just where the where the deals come about? You know, um, we don't have targets. I mean, one of the beauties of the blind loan pool, which isn't a derogatory term, obviously, we do know what we're doing, um, is that every deal that we bring. Um, to the table, every bank in the state in our program is is obligated to fund. We've never had anybody refuse to fund any of them, so we never run into that cherry picking of well, you know, I only want to do deals here, I only want to do deals there, and it's not necessarily a bad thing cherry picking if banks only have, you know, need in certain areas. But we've gotten support from regulators to make sure that banks get credit for those loans, irrespective of where they are, because at the end of the day, we do deals everywhere. So it's allowed us to make a loan in every jurisdiction that is brought to us um, as long as we can figure out the size of the loan that makes sense for that community and the rent restrictions and the market and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, what we do really is we've got a client list that we do a lot of repeat business with. We follow our clients. Um, Ironically, every year we do a portfolio analysis report that we provide for our investors, and without even trying that hard, the deals that we do and the concentrations in the market that we have pretty closely follow the population centers. So, um, you know, we're, we're pretty astute in knowing the deals that are getting done in the market, the deals that are getting awarded tax credits. Those clients tend to be existing clients of ours. And I'm not saying there's not competition for deals because there clearly is. Um, But we, um, you know, we've got deals from the 
we just approved a forward commitment in Calexico. And it was sort of our first experience in sort of this new noise in the market about what a border town looks like. And it is a thriving border town, which, which has great needs for housing. So we've done a deal in Calexico all the way up to, you know, the border in Northern California and out into the, you know, Salton Sea desert areas and obviously all along the coast. So, um, you know, our theme has really been, if you build it, we will fund because we can figure out a way to make that work. And that's our mission. We want to be at that grand opening. We want to see the faces of the people that are moving in there that, you know, had no real hope to be able to afford a house no matter where it is in the state of California before now. So we're pretty excited about that. So Mary, um, so 30 years in the, in the business so far, and before we wrap up, um, what do you see for the next 30? Well, you know, I think because we have um, a state that's really focused on the need for housing, because housing has become an economic issue as well as a social justice issue, um, we have more employers that are starting to step up and see the impact of job growth and what it does to housing affordability. And I am hoping that we bring more people into the fold in terms of believing that they need to also support housing and development, and not only if it's just in their own best interest of being able to attract and retain employers but or employees, but sort of what it does to the market in general. Um, I think the nexus between health and housing is one that's, you know, on the forefront right now, and I would like to see CCRC work more on that and figure that out. The um, it, it clearly in Los Angeles, they figured it out a few years ago when they developed a program that basically takes general fund money and allows um, developers to apply for that. We will actually underwrite to that income stream. And the philosophy behind that is if we house people, it's a lot healthier for them in the long run. They will be lower users of emergency rooms and other, you know, facilities, public funded facilities. And so it's almost like a social impact bond. If you are able to increase the supply of housing and have people be in healthier locations with more consistent approach to healthcare, you will save money in the long run. So I would love to see how we could bring health insurers into that space, and I know many are starting to talk about that. Um, you know, I think we still provide a really important bridge to the capital markets, and um, I don't I don't see that really, strain, you know, changing over, you know, the, the short run or the long run. Um, we're light on our feet, so we're able to adapt. I mean, I, I really thought after 2008 that we'd get a lot of phone calls from our investors saying, you know, sorry, regulatory constraints say we can't really participate anymore. And that, that really hasn't happened. I mean, we see stronger support from investors than ever. So, you know, I'm feeling really good about the financial side of it in terms of the ability to provide capital. I just think the challenge for us, especially in California, is having a different model because the cost to develop housing in California is just not sustainable. You know, whether it's shipping containers or modular or density or co-housing models or a lot of things that are, you know, ADUs in the backyards, 
we, we have to find um, different ways of doing this. The tax credit isn't a one-size-fits-all. And the, you know, total development costs and pre-unit development costs are just, are not sustainable. It just takes too much of the capital. So I, you know, I'm hoping we see some movement in that area to get those costs down so we can get more housing online. Well, Mary, this has really been an informative discussion. Just so fantastic. Hearing your thoughts about the future, um, how future, uh, how much you can um, think about impacting the future, and just basing that on what you've already done, um, I am sure that you will be right in the mix as those things happen. And uh, want to thank you um, for what you've done in the housing market in California, certainly, and and also for being on the on the call with us here at this podcast. Thanks very much. Well, thank you, Steve, and a big thanks and a shout-out to the CCRC staff because, quite honestly, they do it all, so they make me look good. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. If you're interested in more, be sure to follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud.